Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm AP Andy. Um, Sean has decided to boycott this episode and hang out with his friends at the CCP. Just kidding. Um, he's working on some other stuff. And we are here today to talk about the very exciting, controversial, yet interesting topic of the uprisings in Hong Kong. And to help us do that, we have... A great guest. His name is Wilfred Chan. He is a contributing writer at The Nation and a writer and member of the Lausanne Collective, which seeks to strengthen the internationalist left wing of the movement in Hong Kong and connect it up to anti-authoritarian struggles worldwide. Thank you for joining us, Wilfred. Thank you so much. So I got to ask you right at the top, uh, because I've heard I've heard some things about you. Right. <laughs> as as you do when uh, someone's talking about this kind of thing. Um, yep. I understand you used to work at CNN. Um, could you uh, explain yourself a little bit? Um, <laughs> I mean, it's uh, an, it's an open secret that I have a dirty liberal past. In seriousness gets to a problem that maybe we can talk about today, which is just that if you're someone who's interested in China and you want to think about it at a high level, you want to analyze it, uh, you want to actually impact what happens in U.S.-China policy, you have very few roots. So <clears throat> I guess a related question is, how did you become radicalized, if I may call you a radical? And, you know, what political framework are you working with now in your current work with Lausanne and elsewhere? Yeah. So like I said, I was a dirty undergrad liberal. And um, happens to the best of us. It happens. And I really uh, mean it when I say that I was radicalized in Hong Kong. I lived in Hong Kong after I graduated. Really, it was just this frustration with living in America and and kind of being like, I need to leave because I'm so confused right now. I don't know <laughs> what kind of place there is for me uh, as an Asian American, as um, you know, an, an immigrant of Hong Kong people who fled uh, after the massacre in Tiananmen Square, just what 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 am, what am I doing in America? So I went to Hong Kong and uh, you know took a job that was uh, open at the time, which was working at CNN. You know, but uh, it was one of the few options again for someone who wanted to be there and work in English and not do something like teach other people English or work at some ad agency or something. So again, just like very few options, right? And so I was there at kind of a very special time, 2014, which was actually the year the Umbrella Movement erupted in Hong Kong, which was the precursor to this massive 2019 uprising that is still going on as we speak. And I covered it as this rookie journalist was actually the only person on my team in CNN who even spoke Chinese, much less was Chinese. Uh, and um, the team tried to keep me indoors because they wanted to be the ones reporting this suddenly sexy story. 
uh, you know, so all these old British guys and and Aussies and New Zealand people just being like, Wilfred, it's not safe. You you, you don't you shouldn't go outside. You know what? What if you could get hurt? I'm like, you don't even know. Wow. What microaggression are... much? <laughs> right. I mean, just like macroaggression because like it's like if the cops are yelling at you to get back, you won't even know what they're saying. I mean, I should be the one keeping you safe, right? Uh, but the point is they, you know, made it very difficult for me to report on the story as a journalist. So what I would do, and I can say this now because I quit CNN many years ago, is I would actually go in my own time and I would uh, just kind of become a protester after after I got off work. And I would talk to people. I, I, I slept a few nights in the encampment, um, which totally was against company policy and just started tweeting a lot, honestly, at that time. But if you remember 2014, when the Umbrella Movement broke out was also when <clears throat> Ferguson uh, happened. And because I was on Twitter so much, I just started following a lot of radical people on Twitter and kind of seeing these two things unfold side by side, uh, Hong Kong and the Black Lives Matter movement and starting to draw these connections uh, you know, in my own time and feeling like something was really wrong and fucked up with the world and not something that I saw anyone at CNN trying to actually address in a meaningful way. Uh, not something that I, I realized I could address as a journalist in mainstream media. Uh, and after a couple more years of trying, uh, I quit CNN uh, two months before Trump got elected. And, and uh, si since then, I've basically been a freelancer. My first job after that was working at Splinter, uh, RIP, and uh, you know, got to be more of a uh, unbridled leftist agitator uh, at Splinter. Um, and the whole time I was just doing a lot of reading, uh, a lot of talking to folks in Hong Kong. I volunteered for a, a sex worker uh, activist group in Hong Kong that was helping uh, male and trans sex workers in Hong Kong and witnessed the just the carceral system in Hong Kong firsthand through that and that really radicalized me as well um, as well as just continuing to talk to folks that I knew uh, from from the US um, and finally you know I moved back uh, in 2018 and have been involved with various local um, you know uh, activism in New York City um, some some related to delivery work. I do part time delivery work um, and other interesting facts, and uh, also involved with uh, you know, Laosan, as we mentioned. So trying to draw these connections between what's happening in Hong Kong and what's happening here. Well, um, that's all very convincing, Wilfred. Uh, if you're a CIA plant, you have certainly convinced me that you are yes. not. So good job. No, uh, just a awesome. quick story. Last night I was out at the Portland Solidarity demo in New York. And um, there was a moment when the police were closing in. Uh, it was in the Lower East Side. And some people at the, the bars are like either cheering on the protesters or uh, jeering at them as uh, dirty Antifa or whatever. And there's one guy in a Biden shirt who was, I think, on the protester side. So I was like cheering with him for a second. I was like, hey, man, you know, you're the first person I've ever seen wearing a Biden shirt. And he looked at me like he was unsure whether it was like trolling him or actually saying nice shirt. And uh, right. I, I didn't really know myself exactly. But like mm -hmm. you mentioned, you were kind of radicalized by, uh, you know, the uprising in Hong Kong and Black Lives Matter. And I think that's sort of the point of us doing this episode. Uh, you know, we, we acknowledge that this is a controversial subject and we, you know, a as you do, there's 
we have to acknowledge that there's a lot of very reactionary elements to the struggle in Hong Kong, including very common racist sentiments against mainland uh, Chinese people, uh, pro-U.S. Mm-hmm. nationalist rhetoric. Yep. You know, uh, and and you acknowledge that that Laozan is is part of a very minority left-wing current. Uh, yes. But we we follow uh, Hong Kong and, and support it to a large extent because we think that. China is not a anti-imperialist bastion of communism. It is an yep. authoritarian capitalist state. Its Marxist aesthetics do not uh, do not uh, exclude it from criticism as an authoritarian capitalist state. And the struggle in Hong Kong, despite its its political contradictions and shortcomings, have been an inspiration to the entire world, both tactically and groups like Laozan intervening in it politically to try to move it to the left and. We can go into like how successful that's been, but it, it would be foolish uh, of the left not to intervene in struggles that that are even uh, arguably uh, lar- majority reactionary at first. And you know maybe Hong Kong didn't work out uh, the way it could have, but uh, the Gilets Jaunes, for example, in France started out with a very right populist bent, and the intervention of, of left wing groups really moved it far to the left by the end of it. So uh, it's yeah. important that we don't just say like, oh, well, there's some people waving American flags, some people saying racist things. That means this is something to oppose entirely. That is a, that is a, a bad yeah. impulse, to say the least. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I mean, there's American flags being waved in Portland right now, right? So we got to look a little closer and kind of figure out what's the impulse behind that flag and how can we speak to it and speak against it and and, and do it in a way that doesn't just blanket condemn or, or do lazy analysis. But I, I think you get to a really good point, which is just this idea of how do we get from from, uh, you know, a place where we're wearing Biden shirts to a place where we're smashing the police precincts. Right. I mean, I, I'm literally, I guess, evidence of someone who has. Uh, done that over the last decade or so. And I think that something uh, we're going through in Hong Kong as well as over here are these phases of disillusionment. These, uh, you know, we don't all start out just being like the system's completely fucked. You know, we we understand how the system is fucked through successive uh, failures um, that are often very personal to us. Uh, where we think that it can do one thing and then it totally doesn't um, and, and doesn't for people around us who we care about. And, and, and it's a hard process to let go of uh, these systems, but, but that's actually what creates that rebellion, right? And, um, I, and I've seen that in Hong Kong because, you know, Hong Kongers were not like this. We're not these uh, black-clad, 3M mask-wearing, you know, cop attacking people uh you know for for most of its modern uh well you know most of its contemporary post handover history people thought hong kongers were these hopelessly neoliberal materialistic kind of just business people right you, you you wouldn't have ever thought that this would have happened but it did and that's because you had all this disillusionment that happened over the last 10 20 30 years um in very strategic and and interesting ways uh, and, and same here right now, you know, even listening to um, uh, 
podcast just from like a year ago, people were like, ah, oh, it's going to take so much more before we're going to see an uprising here in the US. And now we're seeing it. And so what are the things that cause that disillusionment? And, and it's like a good question to ask of ourselves personally, um, and of these movements that we're a part of. Right. So absolutely. You want to take us through um, <clears throat> some of the history of the struggles in Hong Kong and um, what's at the stage for this current conflict where regular Hong Kongers uh, feel the need to take to the streets and fight a scary militarized police force? Yeah, I mean, it is really dire right now. Um, we've heard of the national security law, which was passed less than a month ago in Hong Kong that basically criminalizes dissent. So you can now be imprisoned for writing a Facebook post that says, you know, resign bitch, right? The, the Hong Kong equivalent of resign bitch. Um, and you can uh, be brought across the border to face trial in a totally non-transparent way in China uh, for the crime of foreign collusion, which is not spelled out at all what that exactly means. And it's basically a blank check for the state to go after anyone that they don't like. Uh, you know, Hong Kong has this pro-democracy movement that we all know about. And it's got, uh, there are upcoming elections in Hong Kong happening in about two months. And Hong Kongers really take this idea of democracy seriously. Uh, and they uh, held their own primaries because the state wouldn't allow them to have you know, a primary system. So they organized their own primaries, set up their own unofficial voting booths, got people to go out and register and, and basically help decide who was going to run in these official elections in September. And the Hong Kong government said that this was illegal under the new national security law, that having a primary was an illegal challenge to state authority. So, and, and that it showed that these pro-democracy candidates wanted to win a majority in the legislature and that that was criminal. So wanting to have your party, you, you know, it's just absurd that, uh, you know, the, the, the goalposts keep moving and keep broadening for, for what's considered something that could land you in prison. And as a result, you see people going quiet, a lot of people deleting their social media, people talking about moving, of course, people switching tactics, but also a lot of people still going out and protesting and thousands of people still in the streets, people defiantly uh, shouting slogans that are very risky and increasingly dangerous to say. And, uh, you know, I I'm pretty worried for my friends. Uh, and we're just going to have to see what happens. Well, let's get into um, a little bit more detail on the history of this movement, because it didn't just come out of nowhere. It's an intergenerational struggle. I think you've written that it, it dates back to when Hong Kong was under the, the purview of, of Britain, and the, the police force is actually a remnant of British colonial police. And then that became an anti-Chinese independence struggle um, in the, the early 2010s with a, a largely peaceful movement now known as the Umbrella Movement. So we don't have a ton of time to go into all the details of the history, but but how did it, how did it end up in this uh, near insurrection last year? Yeah, well, first, I wouldn't call it an anti-Chinese independence movement, and I still wouldn't call it an independence movement today. Uh, I, I think that it's, uh, it's a democracy movement, and that's not just a empty slogan. It, it's really something that Hong Kongers believe, but it does require a lot of contextualization. I'll try to 
go through it um, in a snappy way. Uh, basically, Hong Kong's reason for existence is to serve the interests of faraway elites. It's been true since uh, the end of the First Opium War in 1842, uh, and it's true today uh, under the CCP's rule. But the history of Hong Kong's relationship with China is a lot more complicated than I think a lot of people realize. And there's this struggle that's not always, uh, you know, been against Chinese rule, but actually uh, working with movements in China uh, against colonialism. So I'll give you a few examples, right? The first labor uprising in uh, Hong Kong after the beginning of British colonialism was an anti-racist uprising in uh, 1844, which was shortly after uh, everything got underway. And people rose up. They said, you're basically treating us differently. It was a labor strike. It was a broad, uh, you know, movement that really hadn't been seen before. And uh, after that, you had a series of strikes that went on and on through 1967, where you had the famed leftist riots in which Maoists from China worked with a labor movement in Hong Kong, basically piggybacking off of labor demands in the uh, British colony to have a massive insurrection, which lasted almost two years, left a bunch of people dead, and was a serious existential threat to the British colonial regime. Uh, at the time, actually, the Chinese government considered whether it should just roll across the border and try to take back Hong Kong in that moment, right? But here's what happened is that the Chinese government at the time decided that it was actually valuable to keep Hong Kong as it was, which was kind of this trading outpost, because they knew that having this doorway to the West would be important, uh, you know, if not now, definitely in the future, as China can continue to develop economically. So the sea change was really in 1978 with the reform and opening uh, in, in China. And the CCP opened up uh, itself to global markets, and it basically communicated to Hong Kong that Hong Kong would kind of lead the way in this new economic direction, that it would possibly even become the model for China. And all was good. People were cautiously optimistic. 1984 was the signing of the Sino-British Joint Declaration. And this was a meeting between Deng Xiaoping and Margaret Thatcher, where they hashed together Hong Kong's future, basically said that Hong Kong would have a high degree of autonomy, an independent judiciary, its own government, its own currency. And the most important thing is that it would safeguard the free flow of capital. So they were kind of articulating what Hong Kong was going to be in their mind after the handover. And the important thing to notice is that there was no uh, participation from Hong Kongers at this uh, signing. So there, were, there was no input from ordinary Hong Kong people, much less Hong Kong politicians, at, uh, you know, uh, uh, at this Sino-British treaty. And Hong Kongers were pretty upset that they didn't have a right to decide what would happen to them after this momentous handover. And this was greatly intensified in 1989 with the Tiananmen Square Massacre. You had folks from all across the spectrum, ideological spectrum, in Hong Kong really shocked. I mean, you had pro-Beijing folks, you had your traditional pro-democracy folks just really 
like what why why would you do this and there were that was the first time you had a one million person march in Hong Kong people came out at even members of what we now consider to be Hong Kong's pro-Beijing establishment signed these open letters criticizing what Beijing did in the Tiananmen Square massacre um, because people understood that this could maybe be uh, what happens to Hong Kongers one day too. Um, so that incident, which the CCP has never tried to really address or or apologize for or, or even, you know, admits exists, um, has forever soured this relationship. Um, and, and so uh, this promise that Hong Kong was going to be able to elect its own leader um, be- became thrown into question. And after 1997, uh, there were just a series of slow steps where uh, the CCP continued to signal that it was less and less interested in its own promise of Hong Kongers being able to choose uh, their own leader. And uh, Hong Kongers have uh, fought um, at first through normal legal diplomatic uh, means to try to actualize this, and increasingly by prote- you know direct action, protests, um, and what you see now. And so uh, basically, uh, it's a tragedy because it's something that didn't have to happen. It's a broken promise where China thought that it wanted to have a liberal democratic Hong Kong be its window to the world, and over the last 20 years has found new ways to slam that door shut. So I want to get at some of the reasons why uh, the Chinese government is doing that. Um, You've done a lot of work to sort of tie uh, the political repression together with the sort of economic directives uh, that exist for all states under neoliberal capitalism. Um, Because I think a lot of leftists have been a little confused about like the class character of these protests, right? They're Mm -hmm. best known as a movement for political rights, sovereignty, uh, protection against state repression, uh, participation in bourgeois democracy. And Mm -hmm. I want to get at, like, is there an economic element as well? I know that the housing crisis has played something of a role in getting everybody pissed off, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is something where we have to, again, return to a lot of the really good discussions about the problems with class first uh, ideology, right, is that it ignores that class is embedded in a lot of these other uh, concerns, which are not traditionally considered, you know, to be proper leftism, whatever that, whatever that means, right? You know, we, we have to focus on class. We can't talk about gender. We have to talk about class. We can't talk about X. But, like, really, all these other things are about class. You just, you know, they are about our livelihoods, our survival. You just have to look, right? And in, in the case of Hong Kong, um, democracy is absolutely about capitalism. And the reason why is because the way that Hong Kong's government is structured is exactly to fulfill uh, that Sino-British agreement of protecting the free flow of capital. So you have a uh, legislature where half of the uh, members are actually directly chosen by industry groups. So it's almost as if you could have uh, Goldman 
and McKinsey selects their own senators to go in and make policy. I mean, that's literally what it is. And then the chief executive of Hong Kong, which is, you know, a very apt name, uh, the, the head of state of Hong Kong, then, uh, you know, gets to basically propose these corporate policies. And uh, the chief executive is selected by a closed door committee of, again, business interests. So you have this system that's actually designed to preserve capitalism. And people can't do anything about it. There's sort of this sham where you can select some of the senators, but not enough to actually have the majority. You can select your district councillors who are kind of, you know, they're useless. They don't, they, they do like neighborhood ordinances. And, and so people... Uh, articulate in Hong Kong this this situation where you have to be able to overturn uh, this political stranglehold in order to talk even uh, slightly about economics and uh, and and that's what Hong Kong people have basically decided that uh, the political question needs to come first uh, before we can even have these conversations about uh, the the rampant inequality you know the land uh, policy that 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 just chokes off. Hong Kong people's dreams. And I have my thoughts about that, right? I'm just telling you what Hong Kongers say. And, and I think there are some weaknesses to this model as well, because when, when you insist that, you know, instead of class first, it's politics first, um, then actually you don't develop as sharp of a critique sometimes or as deep of an understanding or, or kind of a radicalization of, of you know, uh, everyone in the movement uh, along the lines of, um, you know, critique against capitalism. Um, but it's definitely there, you know. So, so for Hong Kongers, um, this is just uh, the situation that, um, that they're in and the way they decided to respond. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of sort of parallel conversations we've had in the U.S., right, about how voting is never going to get us where we need to go as leftists. But certainly right. things like voting rights are still important to preserve and people have fought and died for those things. Um, I yeah. I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit about the different elements and factions involved in the Hong Kong protests. Um I know that the leftists are just one of many. So what does this coalition consist of and what are some of the tensions within it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's got everyone. This this movement is and basically the political cleavages in Hong Kong are not so much about left and right as they are about the status of Hong Kong. And it's similar to Puerto Rico, actually, uh, in, in that status is the overriding question. Just what is our relationship to the U.S., right, in, in the case of Puerto Rico? And in the case of Hong Kong, what is our relationship to China? And, you know, so anyone who's not pro the CCP just having its way uh, in whatever way it wants in Hong Kong identifies more or less with the movement. And within that, you have your leftists, uh, you have liberals, you have people who, uh, you know, are r racist and identify with the movement because they just hate Chinese people. Uh, so, you know, it, it really, uh, there's a lot of different, uh, there's a lot of different types of people. There's a lot of characters within this movement. Um, but you could understand it as a shared consensus that whatever disagreements there are within these uh, so-called yellow ribbons, which is what we refer to uh, people who support the movement as in Hong Kong, um, that these differences will be better decided once we've won some kind of democracy, some kind of way to, some kind of breathing room to actually have these 
debates these conflicts in good faith without, uh, you know, the power of the CCP and its capital interests just weighing down on everything. And, uh, you know, so it's a very um, difficult situation where even just the ability to be political, to understand yourself as a political person is uh, what's at stake. You know, people are fighting for the right to identify as something politically. Uh, so it sounds like the basically Hong Kong had a, a popular front, you know, a coalition of just everybody against the uh, the police and the the uh, the authority of, of China in general in Hong Kong in, in favor of democracy. Um, and there was a understanding within the movement that you just didn't criticize or attack other protesters. Uh, yeah. And it, it sounds like at times that that turned really ugly, where there was acts of really unnecessary violence, um, yeah. or just you know bad moves tactically that people just had the sense to ignore or or even defend because that was the sensibility. Um, how well did the left uh, wing of the movement that that Laozan kind of re- represents or uh, or interprets? How, how well did they intervene in those situations? And, and um, I, I sort of get the sense that the left sort of peaked at the peak of the struggle last year with university occupations and mm-hmm. um, uh, and like the frontliner culture seemed like it. I could be wrong, but it seemed like that was kind of the vanguard of the of the left in the movement. Uh, and, and since that's been repressed and beaten back, it seems like the left has been less influential. So, so Bailey, just just run us through the the history of the left's interventions. Yeah. Um, so, leftism is uh, really complicated in Hong Kong, and part of that is because, well, of the leftist riots that I mentioned. So, when people think of the word left, they think of uh, you know Maoism, uh, rightfully, and and they think of the riots in 1966, 1967, where people died and there were bombs going off. And, and you know, there were a lot of different consequences of that movement. And actually, the British colonial government um, did a lot of uh, pretty good things because they felt the pressure from those leftist protesters. But a lot of people just remember the bombs going off. And, and so they don't want to be considered left. Um, and of course, you know, people think of the CCP as uh, still occupying the left position. And if you're pro the movement, it's very hard to also say you're a leftist in the Hong Kong context. Um, now, that being said, Hong Kong uh, activists have had what I would call a very progressive to left uh, tradition since the uh, you know handover. The protests um, came out of a decade and a half long tradition of land justice organizing, uh, you know, housing organizing, the sex worker organizing that I mentioned, all sorts of, uh, you know, human rights movements that people were trying between 1997 and 2014 to make some of these changes that they wanted to see. And they kept running up against the the, the stone wall of this very uh, strong government backed by Beijing that just simply didn't feel the pressure, right? That wouldn't give in to these various grassroots efforts and and, and wasn't accountable. You know, they weren't afraid of not being reelected because they were (laughs) directly selected. So so people started to get uh, really frustrated with these, I guess you could call them more traditional uh, left models of organizing. I, I might also add that in the handover, 
Beijing and its interests actually fought against uh, the right to collectively organize in Hong Kong. And it's really uh, kind of ironic um, because one of Hong Kong's largest so-called unions, um, which, which is a pro-Beijing uh, federation or, you know, um, of trade unions, fought against the right to collectively organize after the handover, um, which is absurd. Um, but it just goes to show that a lot of these avenues were already closed off. And so the reason you kind of have the appeal for this right-wing nativist, very fashy kind of, uh, you know, as you mentioned, similar to frontliner culture uh, uh, protester in Hong Kong is because of this perception that these leftist models um, weren't going to do anything. Um, and after the failure of the umbrella movement, you know, 79-day occupation around the government headquarters, beautiful, huge, you know, protest art, uh, so much media attention, and, and the government wouldn't give in to anything. Um, a lot of those right-wing nativist folks stood up and they said, this vindicates everything that we've been saying. This proves that we can't work within the system. We need to declare independence from, you know, this dirty uh, communist China and, and, you know, let's, we got to build a wall and keep them out. You know, it's, it's just that very kind of reactionary, uh, simplistic story that, that gets a lot of attention. Um, and a lot of Hong Kongers in that state of despair uh, gravitated toward that, you could say. Um, but that doesn't mean everyone did, because as I've written about, the 2019 movement was very much organized by progressive to social democratic, uh, you know, leftist uh, leaning uh, folks who um, saw the issue of extradition to China as a human rights issue, um, as opposing this carceral system that's that's just encroaching more and more on everyday life in Hong Kong. And, and that's um, you know, of course, has turned into a much broader thing with all sorts of tendencies. But, but I, I feel like it's important to talk about, um, you know, that that really complex and difficult history. That all makes a lot of sense. Um, it is really complicated, and I was a little afraid to do this episode at first because of that. But um, you know what? Uh, I'm glad we're doing it now. Um, we're so doing it. we're doing it, baby. So. Some slogans and tactics of the movement have appeared in the U.S. We've seen umbrellas, lasers, the slogan be water, frontliners. Um, what are some other tactical lessons that we should take from the movement in Hong Kong? Yeah, I mean, we mentioned the, you know, um, the no split kind of mentality in Hong Kong, right? So in 2019, one of the main developments that... Uh, sets this movement apart from previous Hong Kong movements is this idea that all these different ideological factions need to not get into, uh, you know, uh, infighting. And that's been good and bad. You know, I'm not here to say that that us here in the U.S. need to adopt this or not adopt this, but I think it's really worth looking at and thinking about. Because on one hand, it achieved this mass mobilization, Right. 2 million or more people out of a city of not even 8 million people on the streets at one time, you know, united and demanding that the government change this policy. That, 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 that would be amazing in any U.S. city, right? But that also came at a cost because, like Andy mentioned, you have pretty fucked up things sometimes happening in the movement that some of the 
uh, more high-profile activists found themselves unable to really talk about. And of course, you know, beyond just talking about the violence against uh, mainland folks and uh, the xenophobia that's cropped up in in the nativist right-wing sections of the movement, this whole U.S. lobbying thing is is a big sort of elephant in the room. And, and that's been an area where there hasn't been a lot of very critical discussion within the Hong Kong movement because partly of this idea that we can't criticize this, this one hope we have, right? Um, but of course, we know that, that this is a false hope. And, and this no split, no criticize mentality also makes it really difficult to have that conversation. And, and that's what we run up against in this transnational Hong Kong left position is we're, we're trying not just to talk to Western leftists, but we're talking to Hong Kongers all the time in Chinese, you know, online, in private, in different situations. And, and we've had mixed success in trying to communicate this. But part of that is this, uh, this uh, mentality of, of no criticism. So, you know, it's almost like you have to, uh, th- there's no perfect answer. Um, but I think that um, thinking as well about how to get people strategically disillusioned with different lifeboats that they hold on to, conceptual lifeboats. Like in Hong Kong, every single thing that you might have thought would have saved you um, uh, has been discredited. And I'm talking about the police, of course, but I'm talking also about courts. I'm talking about the electoral system. I'm talking about, uh, you know, even going to work. You know, people are just (laughs) really tired of it. People in Hong Kong work some of the longest hours in the world get paid shit wages. I mean, it, it's always thought of as a rich city, but tw- 20% of people in Hong Kong live under the poverty line. And uh, it's it's pretty grim for, for people, you know, my age right now in Hong Kong. Yeah. So you, you, you have to expose all these things in a very methodical way. And, and I think that's happening in the U.S. now too. But, um, but there definitely isn't this tradition of, uh, you know, not criticizing each other. So I, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you're yeah. you're getting into the economic question, the you know I, I know that for example rents are very high and, and young people are living you know packed in uh, much like young people are in the United States and with economic prospects looking worse and worse for young people, I think that's obviously been a huge factor of what's spread scenes like Hong Kong everywhere in the world. So not only are you seeing the same kind of material reasons for these struggles, but you're seeing the same tactics. And the sensibility behind these tactics spreading. Yeah. Like, how much is that uh, that internationalism? Are people in Hong Kong aware of it? Uh, that that they are part of this international wave of anti-authoritarian struggles. They're definitely aware, but I think the whole embrace of Western lobbying and lobbying of government specifically has made it hard for Hong Kongers to really understand themselves as part of this broader internationalist movement. And that's been really disappointing uh, for, you know, us on the Hong Kong transnational left. So um, there was a situation uh, about a month or two ago when the Hong Kong national security law was announced at the same time that a lot of these Black Lives Matter protests were appearing across the U.S. And Immediately, you had nationalists on both sides trying to pit these movements against each other to say one is good, the other one is bad. And what that did was make it really difficult for folks to connect. And you had Hong Kongers who fell into the trap 
of saying, well, we're not like the Black Lives Matter protesters because, you know, they're out there, you know, uh, rioting and 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 smashing the Gucci store and, and, and doing all these chaotic things. And, but we're not, you know, it's such a ridiculous thing because Hong Kongers about uh, a week before that were so proud of themselves for being the based kind of we're out there you know, wrecking shit uh, movement. And then suddenly, because there's this other movement that's being used against them, um, they're trying to distance themselves. But that's the trap that we need to not fall in. And in the same uh, vein, on the U.S., I think, uh, on the, in the same vein, on the U.S. side, there's a tendency to look at a movement, for example, like Hong Kong's, and want to not get roped in with some of these... Uh, unpleasant reactionary aesthetics that we see in Western media and to kind of dismiss the whole thing without uh, understanding the interconnections when there's actually so many opportunities to look at the way that state violence is interconnected, that these economic problems that are underlying a lot of this discontent are also interconnected. And if we win these partial victories, let's say Hong Kong wins its democracy or the movements here get what we want in the U.S., right? That doesn't solve these larger structural forces that are just going to do the same thing again or find a new place to exploit or oppress and make things worse uh, for the rest of us. Yeah, I I honestly feel kind of bad for young leftists in Hong Kong trying to explain to like their parents why, you know, the U.S. is not their friend, uh, because yeah. that is the model that most people have for power. Right. Yeah. You there are different world powers and you have to be backed by one um, or else, you know, you're fucked. And like in the absence of a strong uh international and really democratic and anti-authoritarian left movement in the absence of that power uh it seems only logical that they would look to another world power it's probably very difficult i know it is to break people out of that way of thinking because really the the direction that all of these struggles point in is something really more radical than we've ever seen before and something that's never been achieved, which is like a global uh, proletarian struggle against capital and the state. Exactly. Something I've been thinking a lot about, you know, living in New York, seeing the failure of our local government, our federal government to address this pandemic, just being so depressed about the mass death that is happening outside my window every single day, right, has made me think actually a lot about Hong Kongers and the position that they see themselves under in terms of this world system that is governed by the U.S. In both cases, we're kind of helpless to whatever the U.S. decides is the way to go. Uh, in, In our case here in New York, Uh, We're begging the federal government for ventilators. We're begging the federal government to do something. We're begging Trump to wear a fucking mask on on TV so that people will get the picture. You know, I care about what happens in red states because whatever happens there is going to come back here, right, in terms of the the virus spreading. Um, but, But all that just to say that if we take a step back and think of the U.S. for a second as this Um, uh, you know, less as an entity that we have feelings about um, per se, and and more as a organizing principle 
or, or some kind of um, uh, you, you know an institution that has certain responsibilities simply because it sits at the core of all these structures that need to go on for life to go on, unfortunately, in in the current state of things, um, and, and feel a rightful indi- indi- and feel a rightful indignation at its failure. Um, it's actually not totally dissimilar, um, you know, when, when we in New York uh, feel angry at the federal government to the way, I would argue, the way Hong Kongers feel uh, a, a desire to appeal to the U.S. as the steward of the world order that they were told to believe in, right? I, I know that's kind of a convoluted point, but I, I think it makes a lot of sense when you think about Hong Kong as a deliberately constructed place uh, that was supposed to occupy this important role in this global capitalist fantasy. Um, And uh, now everything's failing. And so, of course, you're going to go to you're going to talk to the manager, right? The U.S. You're going to talk to uh, the person who who said that this was all good and that there was nothing to worry about and, and try to ask for help. And of course, you know, what we have to do is go through that process of disillusionment to talk to Hong Kongers and explain that this is actually a total sham. We know it best firsthand here in the U.S. that this is actually not a system that's going to keep us alive, that's interested in keeping us alive, um, just as Hong Kongers uh, uh, have a lot to say about the way that this global capitalist system is is uh, evolving and distorting itself and manifesting in different uh, ways um, outside of the U.S.'s borders and outside of the purview of the West. So, you know, in reality, these are the same systems underneath. Um, they just look different, and we need to figure out how we can stay in the same conversation. And um, another similarity that you've written about quite a bit uh, uh, with Laozan is uh, your interpretation of one of the five demands of the movement uh, to abolish the police force. Um, And of of course, abolishing the police has become this major question within the uprising in the United States. Um, But also, uh, you know, the the five demands, like like a lot of the, the movement in the United States, People can interpret it in different ways. So um, ha- yeah. how has this question of the police been interpreted in Hong Kong? And, uh, and how do you interpret it? And, um, uh, and, and I guess what kind of advice would you give to abolitionists in the United States? Yeah. So the demand to abolish the police is an unofficial sixth demand in Hong Kong. The five demands have more standard liberal uh, requests, shall we say, to investigate the police, to uh, release detained prisoners, um, stuff like that. The the demand to abolish the police is something that not every Hong Konger in the movement believes is part of the main movement. That being said, it's a powerful idea, and you hear it chanted in the streets a lot. Um, the phrase that Hong Kongers use sounds a bit more like... Uh, um, you know, dismantle. Um, but that word dismantle could also mean reconstitute, right? Just kind of take it apart and build it back up again. And that's definitely not what we want. We want abolition, we meaning Hong Kong leftists. And 
I see a similar dynamic happening, of course, in the U.S. with all these liberals already jumping, trying to jump on the defund or abolish bandwagon, saying, yeah, actually, it doesn't really mean, you know, abolish. But the, the principle behind abolition remains true, which is, again, whether it's Hong Kong or Portland or New York, we have to address the underlying conditions that cause the police to become a fixture of our life in the first place. And again, in Hong Kong, what is the police defending? It's the ruling class. It's the political system, which I explained, holds this oligarchy in place. Uh, it's this, uh, you know, it's everything. And when we also realize things like how the U.S. State Department has been training the Hong Kong police, something that, you know, uh, became apparent recently when Trump announced all these policies that the U.S. was going to change, uh, in response to the U.S. national security law. And one of them was, we're going to stop training the Hong Kong police. I mean, you don't need much more vivid example than that of how state violence is actually working together across borders. So I think the lesson here is we have to look at abolition globally. We have to see that the practices that are being deployed in a place like Hong Kong or in a place like the U.S. are being copied and used as justification by states elsewhere, and that if we only target it in selective areas, it doesn't mean that it's not going to pop up or become even more intense in other areas. I think that how capitalism works as a system is that the ruling class is protected from violence and protected from having to think about violence because violence gets outsourced and hidden away in places that can't speak up, right? It's like whack-a-mole. You take care of it one place or, or and then it pops up somewhere else. And I, I don't want an abolitionist movement to only happen in very, uh, you know, in the imperial core, um, but not elsewhere. Um, because the system in China and, and now in Hong Kong is getting worse by the day. And when we look at what the uh, Chinese Foreign Office says to defend a lot of the stuff, it's always like, well, the West does it too. Like one time the, um, the spokeswoman of China tweeted out this long list of uh, just all the different national security acts that the U.S. has done since the founding of the U.S. And it included things like the the acts that created the CIA, uh, you know, incarceration uh, in World War II, all these really horrible imperialist kind of racist things. And her takeaway wasn't this proves that the U.S. model is bad. It was we have the right to do this, too. She literally tweeted that we have the right to enjoy national security laws as well. And, yes, queen. Yeah, right. <laughs> so so that was such a dreadful moment and, and, of course, proved everything that we've been trying to say. Um, but it just shows you there is no other amazing states out there that somehow doesn't have these problems. And we have to tackle these at once. Yeah. Uh, on the topic of abolition, right, there are differences of opinions among leftists as to what abolition means, especially during a revolutionary or transitional period, right? right? Like, we understand that in order to abolish the police, we have to overthrow capitalism, the system that the police are protecting. But, you know, in order to do that, we have to defend against counter-revolution somehow, right? I don't think transformative justice is necessarily going to work on cops and class enemies. So, you know, some people believe that if we 
really want to get to that end point, we need to have first a dictatorship of the proletariat, (laughs) you know, usually through some form of state socialism. And those are necessary steps on the way. Uh, But, you know, on the other hand, that could be used to justify all sorts of heinous state violence and repression, as we've seen in numerous examples of actually existing socialism. So where do you come down on that? Here's what I'll say. I I think that a lot of these debates, uh, talking about dictatorship of the proletariat, uh, a lot of these theories are using 20th century struggles as their reference points. They're looking at revolutions that have happened and, um, you know, become formalized, turned into actual states. And, uh, and And we're talking about it as if we're on the verge of that. We're just not even close in the context of the U.S. or or much less in Hong Kong, right? We're so far away from being able to actually have uh, that. And, and it's not to say that these questions aren't important, but I do think that, for me at least, there's no choice but to try to address these underlying international questions uh, first. And I think it's not a coincidence that you see all these struggles popping off at the same time in 2019 and 2020. There are so many similar themes in the rage against neoliberalism uh, in every continent right now, against corruption, against state violence. uh, And it's something that isn't just a coincidence. It's something that we need to take seriously. And so looking at, uh, so so, so I feel like the question that you posed almost suggests that we can afford to just look at this from a nation state frame uh, solely, that we just have to focus on what's in front of us. And I just think that that's a strategic mistake. So you don't think that China is currently a dictatorship (laughs) of the proletariat? No, they definitely have a ruling class. Mm. Yeah, controversial, I know. Fair fair enough. Um, So... I also got to ask, um, right, in, in the ways that we've had these conversations, um, you know, some people think there's no way that U.S. leftists can criticize the Chinese government without uh, somehow reifying U.S. imperialism and yeah. in the broader sense, siding with capitalism against a form of socialism, perhaps, however deeply flawed it may be. Right. Yeah. Like we've got a binary choice right now. How, how would you respond to that? It's so frustrating. I mean, the U.S.-China relationship is one of the most contradictory relationships in the world. You look at every politician, whether on the U.S. or the Chinese side, and without exception, they've all been on both sides of, you know, the same issue. They attack each other, and then they say that they're reaffirming commitments. They ramp up military drills against each other, and then they do billions and trillions of dollars worth of trade. It's just... Uh, maddening. And the truth is that this is not a kind of black and white binary struggle, that this is really a kind of symbiotic competition, a symbiotic conflict, that global capitalism means that people, states are pit against each other uh, in this all out brawl for this kind of, uh, you, you know, the, the, um, the fruits of this fucked up exploitative system. So the idea that the U.S. policy is simply to be imperialist, that the only thing the U.S. Desi- or that the only thing the U.S. desires, that the ultimate goal of the ruling class in the West is to overthrow China and 
destroy, wipe Chinese people off the face of the planet. I mean, it's just not true. It's, again, a, a complex symbiosis where you see the same patterns of exploitation on both sides. You see the same carceral systems that are upholding these exploitative systems on both sides. And then you see these kind of nationalist sentiments that are that are distracting a lot of folks and, and making you think that that is the, the main issue. Um, so, you know, that being said, there is something to this uh, idea that we're working with very limited discursive tools here. And I think this goes back to uh, what we talked about at the beginning of this, which is how the fuck can you uh, go from working working at CNN, you know, Clinton News Network, um, to being a so-called leftist and blah, blah. Well, you know, it's, it's precisely uh, the problem that we have such uh, limited ways to have these conversations that, you know, in Hong Kong, uh, you now have this national security law where you can no longer say a lot of the things that we're talking about on this podcast without actually being uh, at risk of going to prison. Um, and at the same time, in the U.S., you have the right wing and their institutions completely over-determining U.S.-China discourse so that uh, every one of these issues, whether they're legitimate or not, uh, gets filtered through you know, the Marco Rubio-led kind of uh, boys club or, or the Brookings Institute or you know, <laughs> Joe Biden's office or what have you. And, it's, and, and it's, we deserve better is what I'm trying to say. We need other outlets. We need to work in different languages. We need to find ways to evade uh, these traps. And it's super difficult, but the answer definitely is not just stop talking. We can't just not be critical. I mean, the whole point is that we need to be critical, but we have to also be uh, careful about um, uh, the traps that we can fall into. Well, uh, one trap that we we may see uh, unfolding soon is uh, World War III. Um, yeah. Their tensions have been deepening very quickly between the United States and China over the last few months. Um, and you write in your dissent article that the probably the, the first to uh, feel the negative consequences of any kind of conflagration, whether it be economic or, or, or military, would be Hong Kong. Uh, why, why do you think Hong Kong is in the crosshairs? And, and generally, what, what do you think this conflict between the United States and China is all about? Yeah, well, this uh, consensus at the end of the Cold War was that history was over, right? I mean, we know that's fake, but a lot of people really believe that shit. And there was this sense that China was going to join the club, that it had uh, no reason not to. And the evidence seemed to su suggest that China agreed. You had China join the WTO in 2001. Uh, you, you saw all these billions of dollars of trade kind of coming up. And previous administrations in China were a lot friendlier in their tone in in how they talked about the US and there it wasn't until the 2008 financial crisis that a lot of this fiction began to really fall apart and one of the things that i think we need to remember is that china 
did a lot better after the financial crisis than the U.S. did. And part of how they did that was they uh, did huge investments into infrastructure and and uh, create a lot of productive capacity uh, to build all these new cities. Turns out now we know that a lot of these cities were actually uh, not needed. And so you have these ghost towns all throughout China that are just you got skyscrapers and huge highways without any cars on them. I mean, it's really eerie. And and part of what China is trying to do right now it, to avert their own new crisis uh, is to export a lot of this excess capacity uh, all throughout, you know, uh, what they term the global south uh, with the Belt and Road projects and so on. Um, but my, my point here is that you have a breakdown of these systems, a breakdown of this 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 rosy kind of uh, everything's good now idea um, in, you know, at the end of the Cold War. Um, so, uh, you know, we have to uh, look at the world anew. And, and, so, and so Hong Kong uh, represents the, the compromise um, post-Cold War. Hong Kong was supposed to be the, the uh, reconciliation of all these 20th century forces in one place. And the fact that Hong Kong is falling apart now is your very literal proof that that compromise was never working, that all of it was kind of a joke. And as these tensions exacerbate, it's going to be worse and worse for a, a place like Hong Kong. Um, so, you know, um, we, we have to uh, look at um, the U.S.-China relationship from a lot of different angles. We have to look at it uh, from this economic angle that we're talking about, this, this capitalist competition over this diminishing uh, um, you know, pie. But we also have to look at this cultural battle for this, um, you know, who is the rightful successor to this, this global capitalist order. Um, and I think China is increasingly aggressively positioning itself to be that very leader. I think that... Uh, you know, it wants to be seen in the wake of COVID as, as a leader and uh, as, as a state that actually knew what it was doing. Um, I mean, that's obviously been complicated by a lot of uh, the CCP's own missteps during the pandemic, but it's certainly trying to push that case. The U.S. obviously has no leg to stand on uh, for that. But, um, you know, and then, of course, you have to analyze the military aspects with uh, territorial disputes and and um, how how the U.S. is going to deal with its you know massive imperial uh, footprints across almost every single country in the world. Uh, so it's there's no straightforward answer here. But the point is that we're going through a huge huge transition here, um, a transition which. Hong Kong depended on uh, not going this way, and uh, it's uh, yeah, it's going to be really tough. So, in your Nation article, I really like this passage where you write, "quote Liberating Hong Kong from any state, any law or state power from the totality of these clashing histories would require undoing colonialism, capitalism, nationalism, and imperialism all at once." This was both Hong Kong's impossible challenge and the source of its emancipatory potential to not just stand at the midpoint of competing poles, but also produce alternative ways of being. And to me, what it sounds like you're talking about here is communism, right? And not not communism in any form that we've seen before, but like mm -hmm. a higher stage of it that gets rid of wage labor, private property, the state. 
all that shit. So what glimpses of this better world have you seen in Hong Kong? Um, what would need to happen in order to achieve it? And since I know you're probably going to say some stuff about internationalism, um, <laughs> what are some practical steps that the international left can take here to um, participate or help it along? Yeah, I, I mean, there's so many glimpses. And it's just like what you see in the protests here in the U.S., which is people fucking helping each other in, in the streets, people fighting with whatever they've got against the state power. Uh, people who you wouldn't thought would be out on the front lines, out on the front lines. And uh, conversations that you thought were only theoretical just playing out uh, before your eyes, right? And and that can't not give you hope. Um, but, you know, so besides internationalism, which of course is my default answer, I, I think that in order to get to whatever that promised land is, you know, we can call it communism, you can call it decolonization, we can call it all sorts of things. Maybe it's not even an English word, right? Maybe it's something al else altogether. Um, we have. I imagine the Chinese have more words for things <laughs> like that. Maybe. I hope so. I, you know, I, I hope so. But um, we, we have to stop this, this new Cold War. We have to not let everything get filtered through another kind of sham conflict. Because I, I think the, the real takeaway here is, is, you know, why should we care about Hong Kong? It's the conceptual bridge between the last Cold War and the next one, or the one that we're already in. And, and it's whatever happens in Hong Kong does have impacts on how that bridging happens, uh, you know, what direction uh, the, the past kind of flows toward the future. Um, and, you know, I think that's a really great reason to 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 think about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's whew, it's big. You got any uh, any actionable tips for uh, U.S. leftists who want to get involved in a constructive way? Um, yeah, uh, read Laosan. <laughs> um, you know, we, we're trying to uh, um, translate, write about it. Just we're not just here to be you know, shills for the movement. That's I mean, <laughs> there's there's a lot of things that 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 we do, and and that might be one of them. But uh, it's not it's not the main goal. You know, we're really trying to take Hong Kong as a starting point um, for this larger question of struggle. And, and, and have this discussion with folks everywhere. Um, but, you know, I think that a very actionable and specific thing is I really want to see better discourse about China. Um, and I don't mean I want more leftists to just be, like, anti-CCP. And, like, I mean, sure, yes, like, I am, I am anti-CCP. I, I identify as a leftist. I would love to see more people understand, um, you know, that this isn't a state that we can work with, yes. But I think that how we get to that place is almost just as important as the criticisms have you know implied there's a lot of bad faith criticism there's a lot of criticism that is actually just a disguised form of trying to uh you know smuggle in uh u.s imperialism or double down on this post-cold war western uh consensus right and we don't want that we want something else so how can we have a radical critique of the ccp from the west that that rejects a lot of these traps, uh, that rejects these easy answers, that rejects just flattering our own image yet again. You know, so, so 
that's that, that's that's our life's work and uh so learn chinese i guess that's my <laughs> yeah um we, we, oh. we yeah but it's, it's so hard it's really they hard have a, I know. they have a picture for every fucking word what the fuck that's crazy <laughs> yeah well short short of learning chinese because i you know i had my uh some some problems just uh pronouncing laozan at the beginning of the episode i think i figured it out by now but but short of learning chinese uh you know one slogan from hong kong that i think has caught on is be water yeah. Um, and that means both in the streets, uh, dispersing and reconvening somewhere else uh, to evade the police. But I think it also has a kind of ideological meaning that relates um, to what you were just saying. Uh, you know, mm. instead of having these sort of rigid, crystallized uh, ideas of, of the world balance of power or of, uh, uh, you know, what, what an uprising is, whether it's like purely right wing or purely reactionary or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, imperialist stooges or whatever. Um, yep. It's good to have, you know, without losing your principles, without losing your politics, to have some flexibility and openness to understanding a more, uh, let's say, dialectical uh, mm-hmm. conception of what, of what these struggles mean. Yeah. Uh, so instead of purely just saying, well, th- this is this is rightist or this is reactionary or something. Um, yeah. Go, you no. know, go with the flow to some extent. Totally, totally. Yeah, right. We need a new synthesis. I'm always saying this. Like, none yeah. of the... We're living in historically unique conditions, right? So it, it makes sense to say... And, and also, no one's ever, like, done the thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> We've never... We have not achieved global communism yet. Nope. So clearly, we need to try some new combinations of things, of ideas, and of tactics in order to really... Um, have any any chance at achieving that very very difficult thing which will probably be the greatest achievement in human history if we can ever do it yeah absolutely and be water is great because it's about not doubling down it's about not hardening in in the face of these diffuse problems you know the state always wants to be the answer to everything capitalism always wants to position itself as the answer to everything and and be water says i i don't know i mean you're not the answer we don't necessarily have the answer but we're going to keep adapting and being flexible and trying new ways of resistance and that might be all we have in the end a kind of almost post-ideological understanding of struggle. Um, it's becoming more and more appealing to me. I, mean, I have to say, in, in the last month, I mean, since the national security law uh, was passed, I, I've been going through a lot of grief and a lot of despair, just uh, even as a person on the margins of the Hong Kong movement itself, I've been struggling to figure out, uh, well, what do I do now, right? Because the movement itself uh, is becoming even more diffuse so what am i even trying to work with it's it's even hard harder for me to grasp and people around me have actually had to remind me yo just be water right we'll find a new way we have to keep uh uh recreating this and um yeah well, I was going to ask uh, a little wrap-up question about what the future holds for Hong Kong, but I think you started to answer it just now in yeah. that you're not really sure. I'm not sure, and there's going to be a lot of sadness, and there's going to be a lot of new, unexpected hope. You know, I, I never thought 
that Hong Kong would have even gone down this path of having these mass uprisings. It, it was the most beautiful thing when it appeared, and it's been the most crushing thing to see it uh, put down in this way. And I think that I'm going to be surprised again. And uh, something that's really exciting, again, you know, here it goes, uh, is internationalism, because that's when you start to get the remixes and, and just new ingredients getting thrown in together. And, and I think it's going to be a very productive kind of chaos um, and, and something that gets us closer to the truth. We talked a little bit earlier about the dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, and uh, the, uh, one of the guys who was really uh, in favor of that or a big theorist of that also argued that, uh, you know, in the face of uh, World War I, that we should turn the imperialist war into a revolutionary civil war. So uh, if we are uh, at a historical moment that's more on the verge of a, a world imperialist conflagration like World War I or World War II, um, I think, uh, you know, the, the working class coming together and developing the tactics to think about what it might mean to win such a war is crucial, even though we may not be in a pre-revolutionary mm-hmm. situation. Yeah. Yeah. Pro tip for socialist parties: never vote for the war credits. It's not going to end well for you. <laughs> yep. We got to keep just trading notes. All right. Thanks so much, Wilfred. This is a, a great uh, discussion, and everybody, please read Lausanne. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much. Solidarity and take care. Take care. And join in the fight that will give you the right to be free. Do you hear the people sing, singing?